Lord, may we know you, the power of your resurrection. God, I pray that your people, their hearts would rise up and they would begin to say, God, that I might know you. Like Paul prayed that I may know him. That I may know you, Jesus of your resurrection, the fellowship of your sufferings, God, the heart of your people would know the love of God. I pray that for your people tonight, Father, that their eyes would be open to see you in a way that they've never seen you before. even at the end of their days, at the end of their journey, they still might have a heart that burns and says that I may know him. And the power of the resurrected life of Christ that lives inside of us, making us able to suffer for those who the world says are not willing or worthy to suffer for establishing the kingdom so the king can come and have his way amongst the nations. That we may know you, God. of Jesus Messiah, the King of the nations. That if we've seen you, we've seen the Father. You give us the right to be called the sons of God. Open our hearts and our minds and our eyes tonight as the word comes forth, Jesus change our hearts and reconfigure things that need to be reconfigured and open things that need to be opened and shut things that need to be shut. Magnify your son, Lord, tonight in the word. Stir our hearts for hunger for the rest of this conference for tomorrow night, for Sunday. Thank you for your peace. for the power of the blood and we say Jesus is king over our hearts and our minds he's king over this city and over this nation and we thank you father we pray these things believing and 
manifesting your name, the power of your, your cross in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. Appreciate you all. Everybody okay? <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, some of you guys snuck in after I was here, so it's good to see you all coming on in late. Uh, glad you're here. I've been looking forward to this ever since I heard he was coming again, and every year I ask him to come, and every year I'm super excited he said yes, and uh, one of these years he might get tired of us, but it wasn't this year, so I feel like if I can just, you know, put him in an ice cabin and give him some coffee, he'll keep coming back. <laughs> so uh, we're, we're so grateful to have you, Dr. Gladstone. Thank you so much for coming. You guys uh, give him a round of applause as he comes forward to bring the word. Buddy. Hey, good evening, everyone. How are you? Pretty good. Um, and, and I think it was Zion who made the coffees this time, right? She did a great job. So, you know, I love it. Chad's taught me a lot. I'm one of Chad's coffee disciples. <laughs> but um, he is a very powerful and worthy teacher of many other more important things, including the gospel of Jesus Christ and for this, I'm grateful, and I am so thankful also for just how healthy this wonderful church is, and it's getting more and more uh, just full of the Spirit and growing, going deeper and expanding, and I just think the Wilts are doing an awesome job here, so I appreciate your labor of love and all the, the hard-fought battles and victories Shoo, in Jesus' name. And the abiding in the vine, come on, we're all little tiny skinny branches, but we're sticking ourselves in this gigantic, awesome, powerful vine that is Jesus Christ. And as a result, the life flows through our otherwise feeble little bodies and bears God much fruit that he might be glorified. And you guys are a testimony to that. So I, I commend you guys. And um thankful, and I honor you, and it is a privilege to be with you. Praise God. So I'm, I'm going to read some verses to begin tonight from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. If you are interested in reading along once I get to that passage, then you can turn there. 1 Corinthians 3, it's going to be a bit of a springboard for me into... A message that I have on my heart. Let me come back to it. There we go. I took some notes that I want to have in front of me for this. It's actually a, a message that, on the one hand, I teach this in, in many different settings, particularly Bible schools, when I, when I have the opportunity to unfold it a bit. But I'm going to do it for you in a shorter version tonight, so you don't have to take notes or anything like that if you just like to listen or li then, then watch the, the video again later. But if you do take notes, and I'm not looking to see who might be having a notepad, there's one. <laughs> um, I would encourage you to do that. It, it's good, helps you remember. But this isn't something that I, I simply teach. This is something that I and my family with me try to live out, and we plant churches on the basis of what I'm going to teach you tonight. I call it the eight wonders of the gospel. 
So we not only plant churches, but we disciple people and we nurture churches into greater growth and health based on what I call these eight wonders of the gospel. So that's why I was interested to see you might be taking notes because it will be eight different topics. I'm not going to expand largely on each one, but I'm going to list them and talk a little bit about them. I see them as the eight elements that make up what we call the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this is obviously a very important topic. In fact, I want to say that I believe we're in a gospel famine in a nation that is saturated with the gospel. We have gospel information coming to us quite fluidly and often through social media. We can watch things on television. We can get all kinds of books uh, ordering on Amazon or, or in Christian bookstores. You know, I know everything now is digital, but now all this information about the gospel is available to us in all these different ways. And yet I still perceive, based on scriptural teaching, that our gospel is truncated it, it is often very narrow. It's not full. And so we pay attention to certain things and seek to live our lives accordingly, but we ignore other elements of the gospel. So I think it's very important even for the existing church of Jesus Christ in our nation and culture to become reacquainted with the very gospel of Jesus Christ that saves our souls and constitutes the foundation of our lives and of our churches. We really need to recover the gospel again. The church needs to go to school and learn what the gospel is. And then with the spirit of apostolic grace, be exhorted to live out that full gospel in the daily grind at school and at work and at home and in our neighborhoods and in our marketplaces and shopping and in our churches even. The entire book of Romans, Paul's entire letter to the Romans was Paul's exposition of the gospel. Through that letter, he was basically preaching the gospel and teaching the gospel in three main points. I'll have those three here, plus five others. <laughs> um, but basically, Paul was preaching. He was proclaiming the gospel through the letter to the Romans. Right? He, he dictated it to a secretary named Tertius. That person actually identifies himself in Romans 16. Tertius, I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you. So he's writing as Paul was speaking. And then Phoebe brought this rolled up letter to Rome and went to each of the house churches and read it out loud. And the house churches consisted of Jews and they consisted of Gentiles who weren't very well getting along. This is my point. They were all saved. They were Christians. They were going to church, house church meetings. But there were conflicts among them, perhaps among different house churches against one another. Definitely conflicts between Jews and Gentiles. Paul hears about this. This is a, these are churches or the church in Rome who were behaving in such a way that the apostle Paul said this, oh, y'all don't get the gospel. 
You don't understand it. You got enough gospel to be saved, but not enough gospel to be embodying Jesus Christ in your city with excellence and with power. Because if you understood the gospel, gospel more fully, you'd understand that you're a new creation and you would also understand that you should be really in love with one another and living it out, not having all these conflicts. So Paul's antidote, and I'm sure I've said this here before, but I need it every single day of my life, so I'm thinking we all need it on repeat. Paul's, Paul's premise was this. The, the antidote to every church problem is applying the full kingdom gospel of Jesus Christ to that problem. And then the truth of the gospel and its specific application to that problem, that becomes the solution. My point is, we all need a deeper education in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. The characteristic of the early community of faith in Jerusalem, in Acts chapter 2, at the beginning, they got full of the Spirit there was a massive harvest, appropriately a Pentecostal harvest. When the Spirit was poured out, the crop came up, and the 120 were full of the Spirit, and Peter preached the gospel with all the attention that he got, and then 3,000 were saved, right? And so that's your mighty harvest right at the beginning of the Pentecostal outpouring. There's your Pentecost harvest, the first reaping. And as that chapter goes on, it begins to talk about the nature of this brand new community. They're Jews because this was just in Jerusalem. Many of them spoke Gentile languages, maybe even more than Hebrew or Aramaic. But anyway, they all became a new community, a new kind of community. Even though they were Jews, they weren't like their fellow Jews anymore in Jerusalem. They were glowing with Holy Spirit power. There were signs and wonders and a deep, deep, deep covenant community created by God himself. So they were Jews, but they were not like the other Jews because they were the followers of this crucified man who is now being announced as alive from the dead. His spirit is poured out, giving them that actual life, and they're living that new life poured out from on high. And the scriptures describe that community in verse 42 gives four main characteristics of this community. They were steadfastly committed to the apostles' teaching. That's number one. Now, mind you, this is an absolutely glorious, electrified, Pentecostal community. They were full of the Spirit. They prayed in the Spirit. They prayed in other tongues. They actually announced God's deeds in other tongues at very first. There were signs and wonders and miracles. That's, that's all part of it. But the life that they lived practically in the midst of this ocean of glory was this. They were steadfastly committed to the apostles' teaching. That's the first characteristic. Secondly, what, so the, well, they were steadfastly committed to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Those were the four characteristics of this community that was glowing and ablaze with the glory of God. And that first characteristic that they were steadfastly committed to the apostles' teaching was the anchor for everything else that was happening. All the prophecies, all the fellowship, all the times they ate meals together, which was often, and they celebrated the Lord's Supper. All the praying and the praying like burning incense 
with the, the, the smoke of the incense, so to speak, rising up to God. All of this blazing glory of Holy Ghost presence in their midst was all founded on what Luke calls the apostles' teaching, which is basically what we read about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then the book of Acts. And Paul and Peter and James and the writer of Hebrews and others, they, they unpack what was already laid out in those Gospels and Acts as, the, as, as uh, in their epistles, they're, they're laying it out for different church problems or situations. But it's all anchored in the apostles' teaching. The regular boys and girls, moms and dads, cousins and brothers and sisters and all the people... The normal everyday human folk that were a part of this first glorious Pentecostal community, they were all students of the teachings. They were students of the gospel teachings that the apostles were unfolding for them. When it says apostles teaching, it means the deeds of Jesus, the sayings of Jesus, and what it all meant. What we read, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Acts, that's what the apostles were teaching. These people were steadfastly committed to that teaching. That was their, their anchor characteristic, was the foundation. The apostles were basically proclaiming and teaching the one great gospel, the message of Jesus Christ, the word that is Jesus Christ. And so I've taken, I mean, it's, I've been developing this over years. I wasn't always doing it on purpose, but in the background or in the foreground, I've been developing what is really, I think, kind of obvious, these eight elements that, that more or less summarize the entire gospel that I want to give you tonight. And I want to just lay it out for you. I, I'm sure I've done this in different forms and ways in the past uh, here uh, with you guys, but I want to lay it out for you and just give you these Eight glorious points for you to think about and ponder and chew on forever for the rest of your lives. Because here, here's why. Let me give you a few reasons why a couple of things I already mentioned. Number one, the church of Jesus Christ in America largely has a gospel famine. We have the parts we like the best and the rest we do by tradition instead of the gospel. We need a full gospel, just like Paul preached to the Romans. You guys have enough gospel to be saved, he was saying, but you don't have enough gospel to actually embody Jesus, which is the purpose of life. So he had to re-preach a bigger gospel for them, bigger than what they had. We need that. Amen. So that's why I'm doing this. And I do it over and over again in myself all the time. Another reason why is because as we unfold the glories, the eight what I call the eight wonders of the gospel, we see the magnificence of the beautiful man, Jesus. Amen. And our hearts are inspired to love him, yes. to worship him, yes. and to follow him with full surrender because he's worthy. Right. Yeah. The, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ is Jesus Christ in words. So as we see the eight wonders of the gospel, we see the eight wonders of Jesus himself. And he just becomes increasingly beautiful to us. 
as the veil is lifted more and more from our eyes and our faces, and we just behold more and more and more and more glory. And we experience him in our lives with this glory. Jesus is called the word in John chapter one and in first John chapter one and in Revelation 19. He's called the word. He is the message. So when we identify the different elements of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're beholding Jesus himself. I know we encounter Jesus in prayer and in worship by the Holy Spirit. We encounter him as we're together in, in our worship times, and that's all Jesus. And there's a lot of emphasis nowadays, rightly so, on the presence of Jesus and encountering his presence. Amen and hallelujah. But the gospel of Jesus Christ explains and proclaims and announces and unpacks who this man is in our midst that we're encountering. This gospel is the rock upon which we build our lives. Uh, this gospel is the rock upon which we should be standing when we encounter his presence. I mean, you know how precious and powerful and important prophecy is for the church. But without the gospel as our foundation, prophecy can turn us goofy. All kinds of things can happen that contradict the word. And if we're not students of the gospel, we won't notice when the word of God is being slightly contradicted by prophecies, especially if they're coming from people who are very gifted and get a lot of accurate prophecies. We just assume it's all true, but it's not necessarily. We have to be founded on the rock to have discernment. Yes. It's very, very important, not only to discern the, the good from the bad, which is exactly what Paul says to do to the church. First Thessalonians five, don't despise prophetic utterances. Don't quench the spirit, but test everything and keep the good and get rid of the evil. Amen. There's no such thing as superstar prophets that just go off and everything that they say we take hook, line, and sinker. The community of faith should be founded on the rock, and because that rock is there, we have discernment to test the prophecies. Well, anyway, the gospel of Jesus Christ shows us the beauty of Jesus so we worship him. It gives us discernment so we're solid while still ablaze with the spirit. Come on now. Yeah. We still want those rivers to flow. But we start with the rock. In fact, let me tell you this real quickly. The Lord was stirring my heart with this. And here's something kind of prophetic because the Lord was speaking to me the other day. It was for me. I'm sharing it with you. I live on Rocky River Road. That's the name of my road in Charlotte, North Carolina. Our house is on Rocky River Road. And the Lord really spoke to me the other day. Your address is as your life. Rocky, not the bad kind of Rocky where everything's off kilter, but Rocky is in everything's founded on the rock, the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're, like, you're all about, your ministry, your churches are all about being founded on the rock. It's a rocky road in the good sense. It's solid. Jesus himself is the foundation. Then the river flows on it because it's not just academic, not just knowledge and gaining the facts of Jesus, but the river of life is flowing on this road. The river was a powerful metaphor of the revival that, that we were a part of in the 90s. 
and we experienced God's manifest presence and signs and wonders and massive harvest of Christians repenting and rank sinners getting saved, giving their lives to Jesus. And churches being refreshed and reinvigorated by what? By the river that was flowing. I don't know if some of you will remember or may have heard since then the songs that we often sang. There were a few river songs. Down the mountain, the river flows. That was one of the big ones. This, the river of life. Anyway, I don't want to get off on that. I'm probably going to speak about it tomorrow. But anyway, there's the rock, but there's also the river. It's not one or the other. It's both. But it's not just rocky, it's not just the river with the river of life flowing on it, but it's a road. It's a pathway leading into the kingdom that's coming. The road indicates discipleship. We're founded on the rock, we're full of the spirit, but we're also living a certain way. We're on a road that's called discipleship, where we're constantly learning, constantly growing, constantly receiving correction when we need it, constantly repenting and growing so that we become more like Jesus. That's the way. Okay, we're not just attending meetings. We're a family, and we're living a certain way. That's the road. So it's not the one. It's not the second thing. It's not the third thing. It's all three things. That's our life. Rocky River Road. Amen. That's it. That's, that might be my trilogy of messages for this weekend. I've already begun with the Rocky, and, and if this pans out, it'll be river tomorrow, and it'll be road on Sunday. We'll see. I may have to stick with river. I don't know. We'll see what we have time for. But that basically summarizes, I think, in a sense, the Christian life. Rocky River Road. Come on, let's stay on Rocky River Road. We all live on Rocky River Road. Welcome to the neighborhood. <laughs> you can help me with the, the possums and the foxes, because I'm not a farmer. My daughter is more of a farmer, but when the possum comes, she screams for me, and I have to go out there. Anyway, none of this matters, but hopefully it gives you a little breather to take a breath before I keep talking. We all should have our address on Rocky River Road. We should want the full gospel. Students and disciples of the full gospel, number one. Number two, we want the river flowing from God into us and then out of us to others. The river and then the road means we are developing together a way of life called discipleship that we will walk until Jesus comes back, uh, calling others to join us on the road. Pretty good. Rocky River Road. Okay, so what's Rocky mean? Built on the rock. Built on the rock. Amen. What's the rock? Jesus. The f Jesus is the rock and the full gospel is how we know who Jesus is. That's what we're going to talk about in brief tonight. River, what's the river referring to? The Holy Spirit's moving, manifest presence, come on, flowing into us and out of us. And what's the road about? Discipleship and what? Pathway, yes, pathway. What do we mean when we say pathway? A way of life. So people are just among us. They learn a way of life just by watching us because we're on the road. But it's not any road. It's Rocky River Road. Amen. Amen. Well, that's the end. And now a new beginning. 
We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, right? The, the eight wonders of the gospel show us the eight beauties of Jesus. They explain these eight wonders will show us the great story of what Jesus did. And the power of that story saves souls. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation. So the eight wonders of the gospels is a powerful story. So it inspires us to worship Jesus. It explains to us the story that literally saves our souls when we believe it, the gospel. And then finally, I have to say one more thing that each element of the gospel implies something about the way we should be living. So each element of the gospel, for instance, one element is that Jesus died. We all know that. All of us know all these wonders, by the way. I'm just going to put them in order for you. We know them. They're scattered, but I'm going to put them out there for you. Each wonder of the gospel says something about Jesus' beauty, explains to us what he did and who he is and what he did for us to save us. And then number three, each wonder implies something about the way we should be living. Right on? So here's what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 3. Uh, verse 10, right? According to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and now another is building upon it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it's to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work, which he's built on it remains, he'll receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet as uh, yet. So as through fire. And then he offers a little warning here. You don't build God's temple, God's people. You don't build God's temple your way. You do it God's way. Don't you know that you are a temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him for the temple of God is holy. And that is what you are. There were a couple of people, Paul's warning there. One, he's warning those who are building the church with their own wisdom. Okay, they're, they're Jesus followers, but they're building the church with their own wisdom. Paul says, warning, your works are going to be burnt up. You'll be saved because you're a follower of Jesus. But he's warning people who are influencing the way the church is built with their own wisdom rather than God's. He's warning them, be careful, your, wor your works are going to get all burnt up. But then he warns the people who are doing destructive things in God's house. He says, well, you destroy God's house, God will simply destroy you forever. So it's pretty important. Now back in verse 10, just a couple of comments here. Paul says, according to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. Someone else is building on it. There's only one foundation in verse 11, Jesus Christ himself. When Paul says, according to the grace of God given me, and when Paul calls himself a wise master builder, he's referring to his role and his ministry 
as an apostle. Apostles are specially gifted to lay the foundation for every and any church. And that foundation, Paul says in verse 11, is Jesus Christ. How do you go into a city and lay down Jesus Christ as the foundation? You preach and teach the gospel, which is the word, become flesh, which is ultimately Jesus himself in words. That's what Paul's referring to. Paul lived a crucified and risen life, and he preached a crucified and risen Lord. And the entire orientation of his disciples and the church, everything about the way they did life, was built on the footprint of Jesus laid out through the gospel, through Paul's life and his preaching. Are you following me? Paul lived it, and he preached it, and he taught it. It was all consistent. So he would teach it. If they, if, they, if they went for his teaching, they'd be living out the Jesus life together. And in fact, all they had to do was watch Paul and copy Paul, and he was living these eight wonders of the gospel. That is the foundation. The foundation of a building has a footprint. So it's not just the bottom. It's also informing everything that's built upon it. You don't build a a building that goes off its foundation, half on and half off, right? You you follow the dimensions of the foundation up in everything that's built. So the foundation not only is the beginning, but it's creating the contours of the future building of every church. Paul's saying about himself, and he says elsewhere about apostles in Ephesians, And we know it also just by the examples we read about in the epistles and acts that apostles are specially gifted to lay out the foundation that brings definition to the church. We want to be apostolic, not because we got some guy who calls himself an apostle and is our leader or comes through once in a while. To be apostolic means there's a certain quality to the church that's determined by its foundation, which is Jesus Christ. That's what we want. And that's for everyone. That's not for seminary students or Bible school students or theologians only, and hopefully they are taking this up. It's for normal people like me and you to become students of this gospel, not only in what we understand, but in what we take to heart and what we live out. So there's only one foundation. We have to return to our foundation, Jesus Christ. And how do we have Jesus as our foundation? We restore a full gospel. Well, praise God. Let's finally get to it. If you're taking notes, gospel wonder number one. Jesus Christ is the eternal son of God. That's good news. Jesus is God, the Son, a very, very unusual man. Before he became flesh, he existed from eternity with the Father. We read about this in John chapter 1. It's all in, all of this will be in your Gospels and expounded in the epistles. Certainly, Paul talks about this in many places, at times calling Jesus God. 
Hebrews chapter one makes this very clear. Philippians chapter two, the eternality of Jesus is part of the good news. He is the eternal son of God. So when we come into a meeting or just into our own prayer time or whatever around a meal with our family and friends and we begin to honor Jesus, I mean, he loves it. He is easygoing, he's compassionate, he's kind, he's gracious, but he's also God. And we should have a sense of the fear of God, the godness of God, when we gather in the name of Jesus. Do we ever pause to think about who this Jesus really is? At least scratch a little bit more of the surface to, to consider deeply in our hearts that this is none other than the holy, sovereign Yahweh over all things who became flesh and whose name we now call Jesus. He is the eternal son of the eternal father. He deserves reverence, even if he is not easily angered. He is very patient and kind and puts up with all kinds of my nonsense. And I'll never hear about it. He just love covers a multitude of transgressions. I mean, you know, we get convicted about a lot of things, but you know how many things he's overlooking? I have no idea, but probably a lot. And sometimes that graciousness we can... We can take advantage of that in a carnal way, like using our freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, instead of trembling in our insides and saying, Lord, you're the one that laid the foundation of all creation. You're the, the sovereign one through whom the Father God, who's even sovereign, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he, the Father created all things through you, Lord. The church should have a sense of God's presence and the fear of the Lord as a delightful element in Isaiah 11, the Messiah delighted in the fear of the Lord, but it's still the fear of the Lord. It's not just the, you know, the party time of the Lord. It's the fear of the Lord. Furthermore, Jesus does not have the power to save our souls unless he is the eternal son of God. He must be both fully God and fully man. So it's good news that God himself, the son of God, came into our world, into our history to save us. One other thing about that, the fact that Jesus is the son of God implies that the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit, they are one God, but they are three distinct persons. And the community that is God implies that we are also called to community. So you see this, every element of the gospel will speak into our gospel lives. Wonder number two, everybody with me? The first wonder of the gospel is that Jesus is the eternal son of God. You understand that we could write hundreds of millions of volumes on Jesus being the eternal son of God. We're just kind of breezing through to get the scope of it so we could go back through it for the next eight or nine decades until we go to be with the Lord and then our children will take over from there. I, I go through these, maybe not all eight in a day or something, but I'm constantly cycling through these in amazement at who Jesus is. Because when these things actually touch my heart, I gasp. You know how sometimes something becomes real by the spirit of wisdom and revelation and... <sighs> Jesus is the son of God. Sometimes it's 
I, I can hardly believe that, I'm, that in prayer, I'm actually connecting with the eternal son of God and his father as my father. None other than God, the one and only. Not a false God, not a pagan God, not a fake, not a demon, not a ghost, not a big invisible friend, God. The great hero, the one and only, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. None other. How wonderful is Jesus to bring us into friendship with the only God. That we're not here talking about our religion and they got their religion and that's fine too and that's fine too. None of it's fine except for this God. And we know him. Because none other than him came and introduced him to us. This is wonderful. So it's the first wonder of the gospel. And it's exactly where John begins. In the beginning was the word. It's part of the good news. That's why John's preaching it. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And immediately we're trembling in awe and joy at the one we're about to read about who comes and speaks to this Samaritan woman. This one lady with a really bad lifestyle and, a, and bad religion. She's a sinner. She's got bad religion. She's as, what is it Steve Hill used to say? Uh, he, she's as lost as a goose in a snowstorm. And the one that comes to her and says, give me a drink. You're supposed to remember four chapters earlier in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And here he is at, at, at this, this well by this little lady to deliver the kingdom to her, remembering her complete outcast from society. But God came to her and introduced himself. And so with us, none other. See, and, and every one of us believes this. We, we sincerely believe it. But if God peeled it back and made it more real to us, we would involuntarily flop onto the floor and probably go unconscious for a few days. It's an overwhelming, an overwhelmingly wonderful reality that Jesus is God and he's in our midst and he lives inside our ribcage by his spirit. This is good news. This is, the, this is the, the first wonder of the message that saves souls. No other message does that. Saves souls forever. The second wonder is this. Jesus is virgin born. Jesus had a human mother. He did not have a human father. The Holy Spirit overshadowed Miriam so that the child inside of her would be called the son of the most high God. She did not know a man. And yet she was pregnant by the power. Luke tells us the power of God and the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's two ways of saying the same thing. <laughs> Just not your ordinary guy. <laughs> Fully qualified for salvation because he's fully God. That is to save us. That's what I mean. Qualified to save us. He's fully God and fully human. And as such, he becomes the new man to oversee the human race. He's greater than Adam. In Adam, all die. In Christ, all shall be made alive. Amen. 
He's a greater Adam than the first Adam. Paul calls him the last Adam because there ain't none other coming after him. He's the man. He called himself the son of man. He is fully human. He's more human than me. Not because I'm not human, but because he's better at it. He knows better than anyone what it means to be a human in the image of God. And not only that, he's also God. So if he dies and rises, then that's a greater influence than, than Adam's disobedience and death, which we all inherit when we're born. But guess what else? Guess what we inherit when we're born again? The spirit of the last Adam. Paul says he's the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. Praise God. The virgin birth, really the virgin conception and birth of Jesus Christ is the second wonder of the gospel. And you know what it tells us? That we must be born again ourselves. Okay, we, we, we're not uniquely virgin born like he was, obviously, but we are born of the spirit when we're born again. So we recognize there's a decisive rebirth that we get when we truly believe in Jesus. We must be people born of the spirit. We can't just be born of our mothers from our fathers and be Christians by religion. We must be born again. We must be, we must be renewed and recreated as an act of God when we believe. And we must live our lives according to that same life and power. Amen. The third wonder of the gospel, the way I organize this anyway. The third wonder of the gospel that Jesus is the son of Abraham and the son of David. The third wonder of the gospel is the Jewish pedigree of our Lord Jesus. When I refer to him as the son of Abraham and the son of David, I'm quoting Matthew chapter one directly. Matthew chapter one, he begins his gospel with this point, with this wonder. John begins all the way back in eternity. Matthew says, Matthew starts and says, here's his genealogy. He's the son of Abraham. He's the son of David. He's entirely Jewish. You understand what I'm saying, right? Matthew wrote this in his Gospel. This is part of the gospel message that Jesus is fully Jewish. He's of the lineage of Abraham and David. You know what that means? That means what God was doing through Israel in the Old Testament finds its climax and fulfillment in Jesus. And you know what else it means? It means Jesus is born a king. Yes. He's born the king. Right. Now he must accomplish certain things to take his throne. That's the way Peter preached it in Acts chapter 3. But he was born a king by pedigree because he's the son of the great patriarch and he's the, he's the son of the great king. Even though he's greater than them both, he's also their son. Jesus is king. He's the Messiah of Israel. And that tells us that we, when we believe we become part of a plan, God's eternal plan for history that's greater than ourselves. Your life is significant because you're born of, you're born again and you're part of the lineage of Jesus Christ who's part of the lineage of the patriarchs and the kings of Israel. Which means there's a plan that God was always about and he's continuing it and we're now all a part of that plan. Yes. 
our prayers, our witness in our lives, wherever our sphere is, whether it's in the jungles of South America or it's in a city in Arkansas or anywhere in between, wherever we influence people for the Messiah Jesus, we're contributing to the great overall plan, which gives us great significance. We should feel that way. We should perceive our sphere of life that way. The fourth wonder of the gospel. Everybody with me? I'm not doing too bad. I'm already on number four. Right? The, he's the eternal son of God is number one. Number two, he's virgin conceived and born. Number three, he's the son of Abraham, son of David, which also, by the way, gives us a burden for Israel's salvation because they're the bookends of the plan. They, God started through them. He's going to finish with their salvation. Now the fourth wonder of the gospel, Jesus lived the life of a human. He lived perfect obedience as the son of God to his father. The life of Jesus, portions of which we have in our four gospels, the life of Jesus is part of the gospel message. And that life includes the way he lived in obedience, which he know, we know that Jesus lived in sacrificial obedience, right? Yes. Even in the garden, he distinguished his will from the Father's, saying, not my will, but yours be done, which means he wished that w this could be done another way, but he was willing to do it the Father's way. Jesus lived a certain life, and that life we read some of in the Gospels, and that's part of our Gospel message, right? You see what I'm saying here? The Gospel is not just Jesus loves you, he died for you. That's part of it. That's true. That may be all you're supposed to say to someone that day, but the gospel that forms the whole church is much broader and it includes Jesus' life and all of his teachings during his life. You know how many red letters there are in our gospels? I don't know if I'll be able to turn to it with one hand to show you an example. Oh, you can't see that. That's too light red. A lot. <laughs> I can show you this though. My Bible's got a lion on the front. It's pretty cool. I bought it that way. I'd like to tell you one day that happened during devotions, but I bought it that way. Be cool story if that was a, but it, that was made on purpose and I bought it that way. The teachings of Jesus should be like the ocean that we're diving in. We should be immersed in his teachings, obsessed with them. So simple, so earthy, God coming to people through those teachings going up on the mountain, seeing his disciples. He sat down, he opened his mouth and began to teach them, happy are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom. These words should be echoing in our minds as much as we can get them there, day and night and while we sleep and dream. If you exalt yourself, you'll be humbled. If you humble yourself, you'll be exalted. Make friends with the mammon of unrighteousness, he said, so that when it fails, you'll have friends that will receive you into eternal dwellings. What? Ponder these things, man. Jesus was a teacher. Come on. Yes. Let me tell you about Lazarus and the rich man. Let me tell you about the Lazarus going to the, in Abraham's bosom. I mean, just the teachings of Jesus. So precious. Don't, don't practice your righteousness in front of people. The teachings of Jesus Christ are part of the gospel message. Yes. You don't just get saved and then live the way you want. You and I adopt the teachings of Jesus to dominate our brains and our hearts and our lifestyle. 
and we find out exactly what he said in John chapter 6. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Man, come on, the teachings of Jesus are part of the good news. That's part of the gospel message. I wonder about people sometimes in my own soul. Why are there so many areas of my life that seem still unsanctified? And I realize that the gospel teachings of Jesus and everything we read in the Bible, of course, but especially the gospel teachings of Jesus are just meant to dominate my soul. When I open my soul and just let these words just pour into me like a really hard rain shower or at times a little gentle rain shower, either way, as long as that rain is just flowing down into my soul, it renews my mind. We could genuinely encounter Jesus during revival moments every single day of our lives and not be fully transformed without his teachings dominating us. And that's part of the gospel message. The gospel is not just how to get saved. The gospel is how to live because there's a lot of teachings of Jesus that constitute the gospel. Happy are the pure in heart. They will see God. If you're going to offer your sacrifice and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your sacrifice. Go and be reconciled first, then come back and give your offering. And that's solid kingdom teaching. We have to know those things, not just feel Shandai at the altar. I love all that. That's the river. But we're not on the river yet. We're on the rocky. And the teachings of Jesus are a huge part of the gospel. But not just his teachings, his miracles. The man who walked on water, who said, I am willing to be cleansed and touched a leper that you're not allowed to touch, but he cleansed the leper. So now he's clean and his touch is legal. That's powerful. Lazarus come forth and he who had died came forth. That's powerful. The man of the Gadarenes, full of demons, legion, running up to Jesus at the seashore when he saw him. Well, say that five times fast. (laughs) bows down and says, son of God, leave us. Have you come to torment us? That's a powerful story. The deeds, the miracles of Jesus are part of the good news. I remember one of the Mexico missionary stories of how these, this, this group of guys in one of the villages got saved It was like four of them or five of them or something, among others, I'm sure, but only one of them could read. So they would sit around whenever they had time. And the man who could read was reading the scriptures in Spanish to the other guys. That's how they got the word. And so the one guy would read and the others would just listen. The word of God coming in powerfully. Come on. Don't you love that picture? It's all they had. And in Jesus' day, most people couldn't read. And even if they could, they didn't have, you know, devices to get whatever you wanted. Hey, Siri, look up John three sixteen. You know, we get it right away. These folks didn't have any of that, and they couldn't read. They had to listen when the word, I mean, they'd spend long periods of time in church listening to the word being read out loud. Paul told Timothy, to give attention to this. And then they'd prophesy and have their meal. It took a lot of time. So this man is reading the texts to these other men and they come across that story in Mark 5 
the man of the Gadarenes. And after they read it, one of them says, hey, we know a guy like that who lives among the tombs and strips off his clothes because he's insane with these demons, screams and cuts himself. Let's go do what Jesus did. And they went and did it. And they cast the demons out of this guy and made him whole. Jesus made him whole, but they were the instruments. And then they came back and continued reading. (laughs) (laughs) The miraculous deeds of Jesus are part of the gospel. It should instruct us and inspire us on what we can expect when we come to him and what we can do when we perform his works in the earth. This this life of Jesus in his teachings and in his miracles and in his own obedience proclaims to us that God is near and Jesus is our example and our teacher. And he is a servant to all. And therefore we are called to servanthood. Because everything Jesus did was in service to the Father and all these people to whom he was called. Servant, 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 servant. It's the very spirit of Christ to lay his life down and wash the feet of everyone around him. So we're called to servanthood and we're called to discipleship to develop our own souls in the teachings of Jesus. This is all gospel. This is church 101. This is just foundation. (laughs) And yet it lasts us our whole lives. We can keep going deeper in these same basics. It's awesome, isn't it? Okay, um, it's, it's, um, it's time for number five, <laughs> the fifth wonder of the gospel. Am I really on number five? Who's taking notes? Yes. Am I right? Yes. yes. What do you think the fifth wonder of the gospel is? If I said number four, is for, you know, this is my way of organizing it. Number four is his life lived. Number five is the death of Jesus Christ. Yes. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ are the heart and soul of the gospel. Admittedly, the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus are highlights. The heart and soul. We're celebrating that right now. We just got done with Good Friday and then we, you know, traditional Christianity calls it Easter. But the days just happen to land on the actual first night of Passover, which means the third day really was the third day when Jesus would have risen. And we're still in the Pesach celebration, right? It's still part of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So appropriate little, I guess, uh, little uh, extras there. The death of Jesus is when he shed his blood to wipe away the sins of those who would believe. This is the man who was not born of a human father. Biologically, the inheritance of sin did not pass to him. So his blood was the blood of a whole new race, so to speak. When it was shed, it's the only blood capable of wiping, wiping away the sins of those who would believe. In this gospel, we see the wonderful person of Jesus giving by grace the free gift of salvation for all who would believe. The death of Jesus reminds us that God really, really loves us. He loves sinners. He died for us while we were yet sinners. And when we believe in him, the, 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 the power of that blood gets applied to our lives and we're completely acquitted of all the moral crimes we ever committed by the power of the blood of Jesus. Behold Jesus. Thank God for forgiveness in Jesus Christ. 
I've been walking with God for more than three decades and ministering, and I'm 55 years old, wherever that puts me on the map in your minds. And I'm, be, I'm just now feeling like I'm coming to appreciate with some depth that Jesus died for me. And his death, his blood is powerful to wash away my sins. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. My appreciation is more settled. It's more distinct. I, I, I just see it more clearly. It's a precious wonder of the gospel that God would become flesh and die and give his blood for us. This death teaches us about full surrender. The death of Jesus reminds us of God's love. It pierces our hearts. It provides the salvation could only come by blood. We can't do enough good works. We can't belong to the right group. We have to believe in Jesus and he applies the blood. But there's also an invitation and a calling in the blood of Jesus. It's the cross that calls us into covenant with God. We are not called simply to invite Jesus into our hearts. We're called to surrender to him the way he surrendered to the Father. Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Come on now, that's gospel preaching. That's preaching faith. Faith is not just believing with our minds, it's with our hearts. What does that mean? It means we pledge our lives to Jesus. We pledge fidelity, faith. He laid down his life, he laid down his life, we lay down our lives. It also says that we should love one another the same way. The cross is the center of our community. We forgive. We work things out when we need to, and we walk in covenant with one another. The death of Jesus is a powerful gospel message in what it grants us by grace, the unique blood of Jesus, what it inspires us with, the deep love of God, but also that to which it calls us. It calls us to deep surrender, to covenant. Come on, that's, that's powerful. That stings, actually. Yes, it does. When Jesus told his disciples for the first time, Matthew 16, that the son of man will be put to death, Peter says, this can't be for you. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You don't know what you're thinking. You're thinking human. You, you think that because I'm the king, I don't suffer. I do suffer. I have to suffer to save you. I'm a servant. Forget your idea of king. Come on, the, the blood of Jesus, the death of Jesus makes Jesus a stumbling block. You think zig, I zag. I have to lay down my life. If that's not your idea of a king, then your idea of a king is satanic. Kings carry crosses. They lay down their lives. They're covenant men and women, the yes. queens. Yes. So promptly after that rebuke, calling Peter Satan, he says, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is the way of my kingdom. Its shape is a cross, servanthood, laying our lives down for God and for one another. That by itself should pretty much create the church in Jesus' image. This is the heart of our gospel. Do you see, do you get the idea of these wonders being accumulated? Can you imagine if these things were just constantly preached and taught in all the churches in America? I'm not talking about my message. I'm talking about the message of the apostles in this book. I'm not tooting my own horns saying, I wish all these things were taught. You, you hear what I'm saying? It's all basic gospel. As the wonders of Jesus, but also the calls to the church. This is what creates the church. 
So it's not a, a Sunday morning conference event festivity where the great speakers are worshiped and we're entertained by the music, but rather we're fully engaged as a, as a crucified and risen family, full of the spirit, overflowing with good works and gospel preaching, making new disciples. The gospel by itself creates such a family and such a people. We need the gospel back. The death of Jesus, last thing I'll say about it, it also reminds us that there will be suffering in following Jesus. It doesn't always work out exactly the way we would imagine it, always the way we would even expect the Lord to work, as that Matthew 16 story reminds us. He says, I'm going to lay down my life. That's not what we expect of you. Well, your expectations are not the Father's plan. They're not the wisdom of God. Sometimes even the way we carve our own lives out, we expect God to move away, uh, move a certain way, and he doesn't always do that. Jesus called this the, the part of the mysteries of the gospel of the kingdom. Even John in prison said, are you the one? Are you the expected one? Or should we expect someone else? Jesus said, go back and tell John, right? Because he asked through his disciples, go back and tell him that, um, what does he say that, um, that, that, what's the, how does it start? Tell him, yeah, what you're seeing, that the, the, um, the blind receive sight, the, the, the dead are being raised. Forgive me for, for messing this up. This is like one of my favorite passages, kind of brain lock right now. <laughs> the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who does not stumble over me. I will not fulfill your expectations. Don't make yourself God and accuse me if I don't do it your way. Let me be me. And my death should show you I have some difficult surprises for you. But there's always resurrection on the other side. It will all be worth it. The fifth wonder of the gospel is the death of Jesus. So you guys know what the sixth wonder is, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The heart and soul. He did not stay in the grave on the third day. He rose from the dead. He is alive forever. Romans 6 says death no longer has mastery over him. The death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. I'll come back to that. The first thing is this. Jesus is alive. He went all the way into the depths of death. His body died and his spirit went into the place of where others were imprisoned to announce to them what he had done. So that separation and going into the place of the dead means he died. So he went as far down as you can go. So if you go that far down, physical death and then in the spirit, it's, Peter says in the spirit, he went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison. So now he's, he's separated from his body. He's in the place of the dead. That's as far into death as you can go. And death could not hold him, which means death is defeated. Yes. Jesus is alive forever. His body is glorified, immortal. Hebrews tells us he's qualified to be our high priest by the power of an indestructible life. Amen. Very, very, very intense truth for demons to experience. He's not just alive. He is life. Yes. He's like this massive eternal power source. 
When he appears, his eyes are on fire, his head's like this, his head and his hair white like wool, like snow, and his face is shining like the sun in its strength. And in that resurrection, he's declared the son of God in power. That means he is declared to be king. So he was born as king, but now he's the conquering king. He's not only alive, but he's life itself, which means for us, we're not just given a ticket to heaven. We are made alive together with Christ and we are a new creation. We're not just forgiven, we're renewed, we're brought back from the dead. Even now, we have the spirit of God, which is the spirit of life, and we can live the life of a new creation. Sometimes our body or our flesh competes with us, but we still are a new creation. The old things have passed away, all things have become new, which means according to Romans 6, we have an obligation to live the life of a new creation. That's why Paul says, consider yourselves to be dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And then he says, don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies that you should obey its lusts. And all that, you read Romans 6, all of it's anchored in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. We're a new creation. So there's our inspiration and our obligation to live out the life of a new creation. The seventh wonder is what? If the sixth is resurrection, what's the seventh the ascension, where the king, the conquering t- king, actually takes his throne, exalted up into the heavens. I mean, physically, he was taken up in front of his disciples. Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. A cloud surrounded him, brought him up. He comes before the throne of God. He's seated at God's right hand. He'll, he'll come back later. Oops, I just gave you the last wonder. <laughs> You probably knew it was coming. (laughs) Like I said, there's nothing new, just laying it all out there. But the ascension of Jesus, as I've preached here eight or nine, ten times, I'm sure, this is one of my favorite topics. The ascension means he's actually enthroned over all the universe as a man and God and over all the powers that dominated humanity through our sin. Now that sin has been expunged for those who believe and we're given new life, Jesus did his work. He took his throne over all the demonic powers that take advantage of a sinful human race. Jesus is king. He is Lord. He has victory over all the powers. Our job, when we fight spiritual battles, it's, as you've probably often heard, it's true. We fight from a place of victory, even when we don't feel like it. But not only that, what we're doing is we're, we're unpacking his victory already done. We are fighting defeated powers, but they're still given the ability to, 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 to traffic and move and do things. And that, that's kind of weird, but they're still defeated. So we're unpacking what he accomplished. That's our partnership with his victory. But not only this, and very important, The ascension implies the existence of the church as a family. That's according to Ephesians chapter 4. So if you're taking notes or listening later or watching later, then you could take these passages and look them up to the different corresponding wonders of the gospel. Ephesians 4 talks about specifically how the ascension relates to the church as a community that is a body. It is a family. So that means the ascension calls us to live the life of a church family, not an attendance culture, but a family culture and a discipleship culture. 
Again, if we don't, if we don't fully recognize the, the seventh wonder of the gospel, then churches will be just organizations we attend with programs rather than family that you can have with or without buildings and with or without programs. And if we're not a family, then we're not relating to him in his ascension, nor as king. It's very, very important to him. Remember, he's the son of God. <laughs> May they be one as we are one. <laughs> That's a pretty high standard to be as one with one another. Okay, as the father and the son. A little too much for me. I have to steer away from that. But the ascension accomplishes the ability to do that for us in Ephesians 4. The eighth wonder of the gospel. The eighth wonder. We're almost there. The eighth wonder of the gospel is what we wait for. The parousia in Greek, the return of Jesus Christ. When he comes back to bring his kingdom geopolitically. To judge the wicked and to establish his kingdom from Jerusalem. The return of Jesus means that the king who's on his throne now reigning over all creation and all nations will come to judge all nations, to divide the sheep from the goats. The return of Jesus will be our salvation. The word salvation is used two ways in scripture. It refers to our being saved from sin when we believe, but it also refers to our being brought into the, the coming kingdom and resurrected from the dead. In fact, it's more often used about the future moment than of the past moment, but it's for both. It refers to both. When Jesus returns, we will be resurrected and he'll complete the work of salvation when our bodies are reconstituted into immortal bodies. And then we will live for him forever, which means the return of Jesus fills our hearts with hope. We do not live for this life. We live for the life and the age to come. In the meantime, before his physical return, he returned in spirit with the incoming of the spirit. He told his disciples, you will not be orphans. I will come to you. So Pentecost was like a, a miniature foretaste. It was a big miniature foretaste of the return of the king, which will happen one day physically. And in the meantime, we, we receive his presence, the very presence of the spirit. So the baptism in the Holy Spirit is part of relating to his return. He has come to us in spirit, and he will come to us again, appearing in the sky, the son of man. So that is our invitation, as it is over and over commanded, exhorted, and invited throughout the New Testament. Get ready. Live with a certain reverence, according to 2 Corinthians 5, that we will be judged. We will stand before the judge one day. He is coming back. We will stand before him. And we should live our lives accordingly now. Yes. Man, that's nine wonders. Uh, nine. I've already added one. I mean, that's eight wonders. <laughs> if I separate the baptism in the spirit as its own thing, then it is nine. It's kind of a bonus. But this way I keep it eight. Every one of these wonders, eight wonders, the way I organize it, is like a, is like a book in a library that when it's unpacked, not only in our understanding, but in our lives, it, it, it empowers us to embody Christ together. Jesus is king. He's Lord. He's alive from the dead. And he is worthy. He is worthy of our adoration, of our surrender. 
This story saves our souls. It disciples us. It brings us together as family. So powerful. Oh Lord, we call upon you right now. May your spirit anoint our hearts in a fresh way to open up the eyes of our hearts to see the eight wonders, all the wonders of the gospel, all the wonders of Jesus. Lord, open up our eyes, not so that we merely understand and appreciate these things, which is part of it, but so that they pierce our hearts to live it out together with you and with one another. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let me have you stand, and I'd like to spend a little time praying for you. Now that the gospel has been preached, I would just like to ask the Lord to come to do a new work in our hearts, to do a new work in our minds, in our bodies, and in our relationships. This is the gospel of the kingdom. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And wherever Jesus rules, wherever his gospel is received and he rules, he brings healing and restoration. I know we have a smaller group, which means the people here are, I'm sure, already faithful followers of the Lord. But I don't know all of your faces. So if there's anyone here, you've not fully surrendered to Jesus. I invite you to to surrender your life to Jesus right now. Just believe on him. Surrender your life. Turn away from a self-ruled life and give yourself to him and be welcomed into God's family and into God's kingdom now and into his kingdom when he comes. Sure. Thank you. If you need Jesus to come in his dominion in your heart for anything, if you need the baptism in the Holy Spirit, if you need healing in your heart, from past wounds, your mind, your body, from disease, sickness, or whatever. I'm inviting you right now to reach out to the Lord. I'm going to pray for you as well. And let's let the Lord's kingdom come and bring about his restoration. Right now, Lord, we pray that you'll come. Just let that river flow right now. Lord, Abba, Father, we have adored your son Jesus as king. This unique once in eternity man, the son of God, the virgin born son of man, son of Abraham, son of David, who lived a perfect life, who died, who rose, who ascended on high, who is returning, who saves our souls when we believe, who ushers us into the kingdom come. Lord, we call upon you now to come into this meeting and into our midst and into the hearts and minds that call upon you now, Lord, for your dominion and for your healing, for your restoration. Right now, Lord, come, we pray, come. Come, Lord. The spirit and the bride say, come, Lord. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's call upon his name right now. Amen. for tagging along, man. I'm pacing a lot. Lord, we call upon you. Our eyes are on you right now, Lord. We love you, Jesus. You're the one, Jesus. We make our boast in you, Jesus.
Lord, I pray for like new wells to be dug. I pray that this gospel will touch our hearts and dig new wells in our hearts and in our lives and in our homes. And that you would visit in new streams, new tributaries, new new areas of, of earth in our lives that's, that's, that becomes riverbed, riverbed, Lord. I pray for visitations. We pray for your presence right now, Lord, for healing in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, be healed. Sickness and pain go in Jesus' name. Minds, ears, eyes be restored. Bodies be restored in Jesus' name right now. If you're suffering in your body in some way that needs healing, would you indicate that just right where you are? Just raise your hand. If there's someone near you with his or her hand up, could you just come and put a hand on their shoulder? And please keep your hand up until there's a couple of people praying for you. And just, just believe, folks. Let's pray for one another with faith. God is real, and he's good. And his word in Jesus' name is true. Be healed right now in Jesus' name. Yes, Lord, come. Yes, Lord, come. Bring your authority, Lord. Bring your authority. In Jesus' name, if you're watching this and you're not here tonight, but you're watching this even later, be healed in Jesus' name. Believe on him. Be healed in Jesus' name. Just reach out to him. Guys, we don't create these streams. God brings them. If there's anyone who is not receiving prayer that needs it, please raise your hand, wave at me so I can send folks over there. cry out to you in our weakness, Lord. We cry out to you in our weakness, Lord. We can't do it. We can't live this life. We can't solve these problems. Come in your kingdom. Come with your presence. Overflow our banks, Lord. We pray for refreshing and strength in Jesus' name. Be in our midst right now great and good shepherd and restore our souls right now. This gospel of the king was preached. Oh, respond with your kisses from heaven. 
As it says, Lord, when you were teaching on that one day, the power of the Lord was present to perform healing. Let it be tonight. Let it be in the coming days, in the coming weeks and months, that a flood of your healing and signs and wonders will come to bear witness to this great gospel of this great king. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. And get that hook. Just look up into his face. Best you could see it in your mind's eye with the eyes of your heart open, blazing like the sun, gracious and kind toward his people. Yes, Lord. You delight in your people, Lord. Bless your people. Abba Father, I pray in the wonderful name of Jesus that you will bless every single precious soul that's here tonight. Bless the families they represent. Bless those who are part of the wonderful church of this city who could not be here tonight. We pray for them as well. I pray for your blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you. And may he grant you peace. I pray that the kingdom of Almighty God would come into your heart and your home. I pray that the shalom of God would be upon your home, your family, your health, your relationships, your finances. I pray for restoration. I pray for healing. I pray for wisdom and understanding and prosperity in the spirit, in Jesus' name. Oh, may God bless you. May God raise up a mighty church that embodies Jesus and grows up into him as the head. He deserves it. Jesus is king. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. I mean, you guys are blessed. You know, I, I sit and wonder sometimes because I I, I totally understand what he says as, he, as he's gone on in his life and gotten older, the these things mean more and more and they're deeper and deeper in your heart because there's times where I just ponder just the fact that God what it took for him to make me a part of his family and I just find myself just destroyed <laughs> that he would even that he would even do something like that for me you know and um, that's one of the reasons why I don't like the religious spirit because it carves the soul out of the church and leaves you just with a sh shell and a of performance to obtain and, and, and gather the things you've already been given, but yet requiring to do it on your own and then telling you you're not good enough when you don't. And that's not the heart of the gospel. And so um, I do find myself even just subconsciously just pondering these things that, wow, this is crazy. I mean, that Jesus is in me. How does that, how is that possible that, 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 that eternity still can't contain him and that creation is still unfolding at the speed of light from the sound of his voice and yet he calls my heart his home? You know, that's just, it's too much for me to understand. And so if, you know, I was just thinking as he was preaching, if, if, if believing 
in that powerful blood reconfigured my DNA, how much more will believing in him reconfigure everything else that the DNA is made of? And that the power of believing in the gospel is, a, is, is enough to transform our entire identity, then why isn't it enough to transform our city or our home or our marriage or our work? I don't understand how believing is, is the key. I don't understand that, but it works and it releases the power of Jesus in our life. And, and, and I think Paul said, you know, he said, I'm, I'm concerned that you're removed from the simplicity that's in Christ. And the gospel is very simple and it's very, very powerful. And I think we get away from that sometimes trying to get into to deeper things. But the deeper thing is the gospel through us. When the gospel is demonstrated through us in such a powerful way to other people, they look at it and they don't see simplicity. They see the magnitude of God in a frail human body and they say, how can that be? And, I, and, and God lets us be as as he is in this world through his power and his spirit. It's just amazing. Just the privilege to, to have the ministry of joint reconciliation. I just humbled and honored. So I pray that you get that. I pray that you have such a place where you, you bow before God in prayer and you're just overwhelmed at these simple truths that just completely should shatter everything inside of you. That you don't make the gospel common and pull the teeth out of it anymore that you let it you let it rampage like that lion that it is through your life and let that own roar come out of your own destiny and your own place where he's put you that people hear God in everything you do and the residue of Jesus is left so thick that people have to contend with your your presence which is his presence in you so thank you so much and uh, I'm looking forward to tomorrow and hearing about the the river and and then Sunday with the culmination. If you know anybody that you feel would benefit from these meetings, bring a friend tomorrow night. And uh, I'm, I'm expecting that they're going to build. And uh, I appreciate you guys coming. If you want to give to his ministry um, and uh, what they do there in Charlotte, uh, just make sure you can put some money in the box back there. If you're writing a check, how do you want them to make that out? Or however you want it, yeah. Okay, so Robert Gladstone or Heaven Rules, either one. And if you want to give cash, there's envelopes. Okay, Heaven Rules Ministries. And if you want to give cash, just put uh, his name on the envelope and put it in the box. So that way we can make sure it gets to him and we'll bless him throughout the week. And then um, hopefully we'll see you guys tomorrow night. Thank you so much for coming, guys.